Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. For the past 40 years, the United States' dominance of East Asia remained acknowledged and relatively uncontested, but now times have changed. China is a force to be reckoned with, and current American leadership can be seen as slightly ambivalent about challenging a change in the balance of power. With me to discuss the China-US relationship and the potential for a grand bargain between them is Professor Nick Bisley, head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University and a professor in international relations. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Good to be here, Matt. Ah, yes. Welcome back to the chair. Thank you. Nick authored a chapter of a new book, After American Primacy, Imagining the Future of Australia's Defence, published by Melbourne University Press. Tell me just briefly about the book. Well, it's a book uh, edited by a bunch of guys at ANU that's essentially trying to imagine what the world looks like from an Australian point of view in a sort of five to ten year time horizon where America, the kind of American dominance that has prevailed for the past 40, 45 years is no longer there. Mm. And thinking through the kind of options that Australia might need to consider from, you know, a kind of armed neutrality and a significantly beefed up military capacity to multilateralism to, I think there's even some consideration of the nuclear question. You know, is this something Australia should be thinking about in a world in which the US is no longer the kind of player it was, great power rivalry dominates, should Australia get nuclear weapons? Not my chapter, yeah. but it is something I think you'll see in the Australian debate begin to appear and it'll obviously polarise people, but it's something to something to think about. It's a question that a lot of Asian countries are Posing to themselves, though, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, nuclear proliferation... Oh, um, not just that. The entire oh, the whole question, what's our yeah. place. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. I think this yeah. is the, the, the sort of questions that we ask in the book. I would imagine most countries would be asking themselves, particularly if you are like Japan or Korea or Singapore, a country that has been dependent on the United States and has sort of built up your defense posture and strategy on the assumption that the US would always be there and always mm. behave in the same sort of way. And what we've seen over the past few years is, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, so during the 2016 election campaign, there was a little kind of indication of what Trump's thinking was for America's place in East Asia. And now a couple of years in, do we have a better idea of that other than using China as a kind of economic boogeyman? I think during the campaign in the region... I don't think I don't know anyone in the region who looks at this sort of stuff, either regional players or in Australia, who really took the Trump election prospect seriously. So no one really thought through if you had a Trump, what it might mean. Yeah. After he was elected, and in that few months between the election and the inauguration, some really weird things happened in Asia that made everyone kind of go, "Woof, what the heck's going on here?" And the, the most pointed of which was a phone call that Trump took from Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president. Yes. Now, the US and Taiwan um, formally do not have diplomatic ties since the US recognized the PRC in the 1970s and and moved away from recognizing Taiwan as China. And this was seen by everyone who watches this stuff as potentially revolutionary. What are the layers of meaning here? Is this purely symbolic? Is this something which says he's going to upend the bedrock of American-Asian policy for 40 years, which is recognition of the PRC and a positive diplomatic relationship with um, the People's Republic and this sort of weird diplomatic dance over Taiwan? Or was it the precursor to a, we'll cut a deal, you know, so I'll bring Taiwan in and then they'll feel comfortable and then I'll sell Taiwan up the river to the Chinese. No one knew what it meant, but what it did mean, I think for all of us is, 
all of a sudden there were a bunch of questions about what the US was going to do. Because I think up until then, we assumed Hillary was going to win and Hillary might be slightly more muscular than Obama, but the basic pattern of relations, the sort of policy that US had had in the region was not going to change meaningfully. Go forward two years. Halfway slash a quarter through the Trump presidency. Yeah, but, well, but we're halfway through. We're closer <laughs> to his re-election, um, <laughs> he said controversially, than we are to his election. Mm. But I think we've got a pretty clear sense of where the US stands now, but that stance itself was a bit odd. So, I kind of wonder if we know what Trump's stance is or if we know what the Republican Party's stance is. Yeah, and I, I think that's, an, that's a really important distinction to make. There is what America has done over the past two years and the general view of what some people would refer to as the deep state, but, you know, that kind of Department of State, the Department of Defense, the National Security Establishment, which is broadly trying to sustain the status quo of America being the region's preeminent military power, to try to see off China as a peer competitor, to maintain a kind of liberal and open regional order. Then there's what Trump has said and what Trump has done. Mm. Uh, A lot of it is at odds with aspects of that strategy. Most obviously, there's the trade stuff, particularly the trade war with China, which is very much at odds with the idea of a liberal and open international economic order and a liberal and open Asian economic order. And then there's the fixation on North Korea's nuclear weapons and the creation of a crisis. So Trump presaged a crisis with North Korea and then brokered a sort of kind of deal with mm. the North Koreans that has ostensibly stopped their testing, uh, hasn't stopped their continued development of nuclear weapons. So we've got this weird kind of mix of things in the region where the US is sort of on autopilot in some aspects. It's continuing to be like it was in the past. Question marks about aspects of that strategy. Big question marks about division between the White House and everything else in the US government. And then probably most importantly of all, from the Australian point of view or any of the other allies' point of view, is what's America going to do in the long run? Mm. And I think the thing that probably freaked most of us out the most with Trump's election and, and what's happened since is not, you know, taking us to the brink of, of war in the Korean Peninsula, but that America is a country that elected a guy like Trump and looks, I think, on balance at this stage as likely as not to re-elect him. The Republican Party is entirely in behind this guy. And what that means is America is not politically the kind of country we thought it was and that the way in which it's going to think about its role in the region and the world is not going to be like it was in the past. So that's why we've sort of begun to think, well, what will the future look like and what do we need to do, particularly you know, lesser countries like Australia, yeah, uh, yeah. in a world in which our great and powerful friend doesn't behave like it used to. So your chapter in the book is about considering whether a grand bargain is feasible, what it might look like, and what barriers there are. But it sounds like the America that you're describing has more question marks than the Gutenberg press. <laughs> so is a bargain even viable? Well, I think one of the things the Trump presidency brought to the table was the possibility of some sort of deal. You know, a grand bargain of the kind that I was sort of trying to think through in the chapter that's to say a kind of 21st century version of what happened in the 1970s where Nixon and, and Mao sat down and figured out how to get along with one another and, mm. and took concessionary steps towards the middle ground between the two. Could that happen again? Because I think the trajectory that the US policy was on under George W. Bush and then under Obama was very consistent, which is America will always be the preeminent power. Its long-term strategy for decades had been to see off a peer competitor in East Asia code China. With Trump's election, you had someone who was questioning all of those core beliefs about 
American strategy, not necessarily in a deeply reflective or <laughs> considered way, mm. but in a way in which if someone had asked me to write a chapter like that under a Clinton president who had said, there's no point, this is just never going to happen. Whereas politically, could the US and China sit down and figure out a world in which they can get along with each other? Under Trump, that became a possibility. And I think the key kind of starting point is that the US and China currently, and have been over probably you know, the better part of a decade, are on a path in which neither can essentially accept the other's role in the region, or at least what they imagine their futures to be. America, at the moment, if it continues on its old trajectory, can't accept the vision that China has of itself in the region, which is to be the preeminent power, and the reverse is also true. Beijing can't live in a world in which the US is forever the region's dominant power. So could they find some middle ground? Mm -hmm. And I think for many of us who watch this stuff fairly closely, think that the only way in which we can avoid a really dangerous and risky geopolitical future is if some kind of bargain can be struck between these two great powers. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> can it be done? So what would need to happen? So a grand bargain, what I mean by a grand bargain, it's a sort of... It's a bargain on such a big scale that even Trump would be happy with the achievement yeah, it, of it. It's Trumpian in its scale and, and grandiosity. You well, know, that's got, good. That's which a good is, thing. It's going to appeal to the man's ego, yeah. not inconsiderable ego. But sorry, uh, also in, <coughs> in his defence, probably Xi Jinping's as well. Yeah, absolutely. So a grand bargain is essentially, it's a deal, it's a, a bargain, and you've got this marketplace metaphor that's there to refer to the fact that both sides have to make some concessions. Both sides have to move. And it's not a dominant power saying, here are the terms of the deal, accept yeah. it. And what I think has been surprising to me over the past few years is watching American senior policy figures essentially doesn't recognize that both China and the US need to make some moves. Mm. That the, the American position has been, here are the rules... And you just need to accept them. And can't you see it's in your interest to accept them? So there's no room for ego. Well, there's little room for ego in a grand bargain, but there is ego involved here. Well, there's, there's always room for ego. <laughs> um, but what there is is both sides have to be able to give something up. Yeah. And usually have to give up something fairly significant. Again, if you go back to the precursor, the 1970s deal that America and the PRC struck, that involved a pretty big deal for both sides. So China essentially had to give up its claim to being a revolutionary sort of dominant figure that's going to lead the third world and particularly the Asian peoples. And that had been a big part of the sort of Maoist foreign policy. For its side, the US had to give up Taiwan and had to say, we will no longer recognize the Republic of China as legitimate heirs to the Chinese state. And we will recognize a communist country, the world's mm. most populous communist country. Remember, this is the Cold War. This is a big deal to make a move like that, driven in part by Cold War mm. logic to put pressure on the Soviet Union. So if we think about where we are today... Yeah, what are the concessions this time around? Well, you, you've got to reckon it's, Taiwan, it's Taiwan little, again. Yeah, there's no kind of like nine-dash line kind of well, thinking a whole, I mean, coming okay, into it? If you got into the details, it's, it's going to depend on the kind of bargain that you're talking about. Yeah. And what I explored in the chapter is a kind of imagine there's three sort of broad visions of bargains or three broad paths. Now, not to say there's only three, but when you're thinking these things through, it's useful to kind of come up with a couple to stylize it and then work out what the detail might look like. But, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you've got a grand bargain that's big and baroque, lots of pieces on it in which the US and China figure out a big, complex and inclusive means through which the region can be reordered for the decades to come. And 
the closest parallel to this historically that I sort of thought through in the chapter is something like the Concert of Europe that was created in the 19th century at the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars. The victorious powers, having defeated Napoleon, sat down and said, how do we make Europe safe again? How do we make Europe not a place in which great power war is the norm, but in which we reconcile our interests and have a kind of shared set of rules of the game? Mm. So what I imagined here was to say, that's one version of a bargain in which China and the US not only sit there and go, we can get along with each other, but we can create a system in which all of the Asian powers can have a stake in this and we can bring countries like Japan and India and Indonesia and Korea and Australia and others to the table and collectively manage the region. It's a big deal. It would be very complex to manage. But essentially, if the US and China could figure out a set of principles, could figure out a set of rules and could figure out a respective place for themselves and the others in it, that could work. It would require an enormous shift in mentality on all fronts. It would require both sides to give up a very considerable amount. The US would have to give up a good deal more because mm. it would go down from being this dominant power, this kind of apex player, to being you know, first among equals, but the equals bit would be important in such an arrangement. And for China to accept some kind of deal like that, it would have to feel like it is on a par with the United States and that its core interests were being not threatened but defended by this thing. What does that mean? That means Taiwan is part of the PRC, the big expansive claims it has around maritime territories like the South China Sea, like the East China Sea that we've talked about previously, not just respected, but these are defended by such set of arrangements. And that would be a pretty big concession by the US in the first instance, but also by the rest of the region. So it's a big set of moves away from where we are. But if that's the price to pay for geopolitical stability and an inclusive regional order, that's the stuff of grand bargains. That's yeah. the kind of deal. You, and you're thinking big issues on a sort of world historical scale. So is there a less formal version of that that could maybe eventuate, maybe not even as an organized outcome? Just... Yeah. Like I said, that's at the Brock end. It's got institutions. It's got all sorts of bits. It, it, and it's, and it's, you know, it's pretty hard to imagine in the short run. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that I think more realistically, if they came to blows, like if there was a war. It's the peace treaty. That's the thing that comes out of it because it tends to be the trauma of war that forces states to take the steps that they need to to get to that kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. That that stuff very rarely happens. It has never happened without pretty cataclysmic war beforehand. So the middle path that I think through is essentially a great power carve up where the US and China sit there and strike a deal about themselves, their place in the region, and generally what the region will look like, and everyone else just has to take it. Mm. Um, There's not a place at the table for anyone else. There is a sort of bilateral set of agreements that manages things in which they respect one another's spheres of influence, they respect one another's place, they respect a kind of pretty minimalist but a broad vision for what the region looks like, or at least what their respective places are, and everyone else has to just swing in behind them and put up with it. That's a bargain, again, where both sides would have to take some steps to the middle ground. Again, there's no deal that China's going to accept that doesn't basically include not just a sort of tacit, but a formal and substantive acceptance of Taiwan as as a sovereign part of PRC territory and the rest of those core claims that, that the PRC has. You know, and the US would then be in a weaker position, but not as relatively weaker than, or not relatively lesser status position than that big, broad, concert of Asia style vision previously. You would imagine under such circumstances that the alliances that America has would be quite different. Mm. Um, And in fact, the value of the alliances for some alliance partners might be questioned. So if you're South Korea 
and you've got an America and China that have struck a deal and they're not going to fight each other. Yep. And you're much more interested in, if you're South Korea, China trade, you're interested in trying to reconcile North Korea and you feel like you might be able to be down a path with the North Koreans to some sort of federated future over 20 years, you may not need that alliance with the United States anymore. Mm. Um, it's quite a different world than the one we're in. It's one that's, I think, potentially a lot more stable than where we are. But because Asia is a big place and a complex place, when you've got a diplomatic deal that's essentially rests on the relationship between two countries and, and that's it, it means things that are far from the core interests of the two can still get pretty messy. And equally, it means that it's potentially combustible if those whatever relationship it was that created that deal breaks down. Yeah. And often these things can be very driven by personalities and individuals or administrations. And as we saw with 2016, you know, the move from the Obama administration to the Trump administration meant not just you know the shift of one president to another, but a fundamental change in how the American government approached a whole range of things internally and externally. So it's a less costly, more imaginable kind of bargain, but potentially also unwieldy and fragile. So where is Australia's place in such a deal? It sounds like we would have very little say and it would be what can we get out of the resulting situation? Yeah, we would be one amongst many whispering in the ears of either side, depending mm. on, I mean, you would imagine the American side under current circumstances, maybe a tiny little toe in the door. A seat at of, the kiddies table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think from an Australian point of view, that bigger vision of a concert of Asia gives a lesser powers a much greater, relatively speaking, place than that middle ground. Mm. Um, but ultimately, as a lesser power in such an arrangement, you're a price taker and you just have to kind of get what you're given. So putting aside a grand bargain, because it does seem quite aspirational, what do you think is going to be the most likely outcome between these two countries? I think the most likely outcome is actually the kind of third version of a, of a bargain, which is not much of a bargain, but it's something. So where we are now, I think, is both sides have not yet formally accepted or articulated the fact that they have fundamentally irreconcilable visions of each other and their place in the region. Mm. And a third path is one where they kind of sit down and recognize that and sort of figure out, okay, we've got to strike some kind of deal. We have to create a modus vivendi that looks in the eye the fact that the current arrangements, you know, America is essentially trying to create a world in which it's always 1998. And the PRC is trying to create a world in which America basically isn't there at all, either geopolitically or geoeconomically. And no, it's not doing it by trying to do it tomorrow and flip the table, um, but that's clearly the kind of world it's working towards. That more minimalist vision of a bargain is one where they go, okay, if we continue on that path, we are going to create an extremely competitive, extremely combustible and potentially conflict-prone region. And PS, that's the path we're on. Yeah. And I think people haven't quite twigged to this one. What the two biggest players, I think, need to do in their own interest and in the interest of the rest of us is stop heading down that path and take some diplomatic steps to create a kind of modus vivendi. Now, the incentives to do that are very mixed. The long-term incentives are very clear. You know, it's, it's in everyone's interest to create a more stable and balanced regional environment. But the domestic incentives on both sides, whether you're in China or the United States, are very different from that. Mm. So just think about Trump. Now, he's a salesman. He's, he's nothing more than a salesman. But it would be a pretty hard sell to be the American president who says we have to accept a reduced place for the United States in Asia. Yeah, yeah. But 
On the other hand, there is an incentive, which is a reduced place for the United States and Asia means a reduced check that you have to write. The America writes a pretty big check for Asian security and stability at the moment. Others do as well. The Japanese do, the Koreans do, everyone contributes. But the US pays the lion's share. You know, they're staring at deficits for generations to come at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, you can imagine that kind of thing may bear down on a president over time. Just not this one, I don't think. I doubt this one, but yeah. it's there. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, the politics of it are really tough. I think it's very, very difficult for a Democrat. From a domestic electoral point of view, Democrats are always on the defensive mm. on national security questions. And a Democratic presidential contender or president seeking re-election who has the you sold us up the river to the communist Chinese tacked to their front will find life very difficult, politically speaking. So, mm. And this is the real dilemma. From an American point of view, the domestic political incentives to accept that the geopolitical trajectory that the US is on is a dangerous one. Yeah. But that's true also in China. You know, for the PRC, it's in a stronger position, both because it's a rising power and it's growing economically, but more importantly, it's a resident power. You know, it's there. But equally, you know, Xi Jinping or any other leader that comes that has to move from the kind of political position it's been on at the moment, which says, you know, China is essentially trying to create a world in which China is the preeminent power to uh, actually, well, we're going to create a world in which we find some sort of diplomatic modus vivendi with the Americans mm. um, and the Seventh Fleet will have to remain and various other things we'll have to put up with. But we get Taiwan back. If you're a leader like Xi Jinping, whose position in the party looks strong on the surface, but is in fact fairly fragile internally, he's made a lot of enemies over the past five years. There's lots of questions about him potentially overextending himself. If he were to put a more moderate face to Chinese power in the region, mm. that might be all the excuse people need to push him out the door. Yeah. So for him, I think he has potentially painted himself into a geopolitical corner on this one. So, so that's why I think you've got this weird world in which the best scenario for the region, which is to say some kind of bargain struck between the major powers to create an accepted vision for a stable and balanced regional security order, is... Very hard to imagine because of the domestic incentives of the great powers. Mm. That's bleak. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're gonna we're gonna fight a war, right? No. But what it means is that what we had become used to over the past sort of four decades, which is China and America can get along with each other and we just get on with the business of business and trade and investment and tourism and all that sort of stuff. All of that stuff that we've gotten used to just happening without the shadow of geopolitics on it that threat and risk and fear has come back. So we're not on the brink of the Third World War, but we're, I think, entering into a world in which conflict and risk and fear is much more normal and normalized and costly part of everyone's life. Okay. Unless a grand bargain can be struck. Well, that's a good sales pitch for that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, read more in the chapter in your book. Please do. Yes. Thanks for your time today, Nick. Pleasure, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He is at Nick Bisley. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>